afternoon, church, and welcome to the Eternity Life podcast, episode two. This is Pastor Daniel, and I pray that God is with you today and that you are ready to become a new creation to drink the waters of eternal life. Today, what we're going to talk about is John chapter four, where our lesson is this verse. The water that I give to you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water that I give will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life, to become in you eternity life, the good life. And why do I say eternity life and not eternal life as Google Docs would clearly rather I do, because eternity life is a better translation. And for more on that, I encourage you to listen to episode one of this Eternity Life podcast. This is the story of the woman at the well. This is a story about surviving versus thriving. Water is needed for survival, yet Often, it's those with privilege who control the water supply. We see this time and time again that the rich or the elite are the ones on the water, and that's true even today. Find some lakefront property or some beachfront property and and see how nice the houses are there. And the further away from water, the more likely we are to have impoverished communities. The story of the woman of the well is the story of a woman who needs water, who has to come to this well every day. And I want to start with some misconceptions that are often said about her in this story. Let's talk about what the woman at the well is not. The woman at the well is not a prostitute. She is not a prostitute. If you heard that growing up, if you were taught that, I am deeply sorry. I don't know why we have for so long dismissed important women throughout the Bible uh, for fear that we might learn something from them. I'm not sure why. But if you use your detective skills, you'll find out pretty quickly that this is not a story about a woman who's a prostitute. For one, people who are working in the oldest profession are not married perhaps ever, or if so, definitely not often, and definitely not in Jewish communities or in Samaritan communities. And we know that this woman is not married right now, but she's been married five times already. Five times. And we know that from ancient marriage customs, it is not that women were allowed to choose divorce. Women did not choose to be married in the first place. Why would they be given the choice to stay married if they weren't asked to be married in the first place. Women could not divorce. So if you're looking at the story and thinking, what kind of hard-to-get-along-with woman is she that she's been divorced five times? That is not the case. She is not someone who could bring up the agency of divorce. It's men. Men are the only ones who had the agency to divorce their spouse. And if you follow the Levitical laws, divorce is mainly only happening in cases of infidelity. If you know the story of Jesus being born in Matthew's gospel, Joseph has a chance to divorce Mary quietly or to have her publicly stoned in the streets. Both of those are his right for her apparent infidelity, that is, that she's pregnant and that Joseph is not the father. So we know that being five times divorced is not the answer here either. Not a prostitute because she's been married so many times, and not someone who's been divorced because if she'd been divorced, she would have either been stoned in the streets and been killed, which by the way is not okay, or she would have been divorced quietly to go live back at her father's house. She would never be married again. 
definitely not be married four more times. So what's the parsimonious answer here? What's the most likely, most common thing that could have happened here? Why she would have been married five times and the man that she's with now, she's not married to. Well, if you back up in the Bible, all the way back to Genesis chapter 38, there's a story of Tamar, who was promised to be married to the oldest son of Judah in order that she might perpetuate the lineage. Now, if you know anything about Jerusalem and the surrounding area, by the time Jesus was born, they called it Judea, but they used to call it Judah before that, and Judah is a very important biblical figure. So he needs his lineage to be protected, and he has his lineage go through the oldest son, as is customary for the day and age that uh, that's the way you perpetuated your lineage, just through your oldest son. Well, his oldest son is married to Tamar, and his oldest son dies very soon after, before an heir has been created. So the biblical laws say that Judah's next son is supposed to marry Tamar. And this is where it gets weird. The role of the second son is to have his brother's children, not have his own children. He's supposed to have his brother's children because they are heirs to the patriarchal system. And the second brother won't. So God strikes him dead. That's the story in Genesis 38. And Judah starts to realize or starts to wonder that Tamar might be bad luck. And while he promises her that his third son, when he comes of age, he might just be seven or eight years old at this point, he promises Tamar that she can marry his third son. He actually has no plans to follow through on that. Well, Tamar takes matters into her own hands, and you can find out what happens more if you read the rest of Genesis 38. It's an interesting story about redemption. But I'm telling you this because it lays the foundation for our story of the woman at the well quite well. The only really likely explanation for why she would have been married five times is that her first husband died, and then her second husband, his brother, died, and that happened three other times five times widowed. And the man she's with now likely won't marry her because she's been married five times. And these people are incredibly superstitious. Or maybe, just maybe, she's finally found someone that she can be with out of love rather than out of being sold to this family. Now, if you think that having five husbands all die is virtually impossible, you need to think about what it's like in a wartime situation. What if all five brothers went to war and they all died in the matter of two or three years? Or what if there was a sickness and it wiped out people? The point is, this is the story. And if all five of those husband or some of them died at home, who do you think cared for them in their last days? This woman at the well is not a prostitute or a harlot or something like that, some slanderous name. She's a widow. Five times over, grief and mourning and pain, followed by remarriage and death and grief and mourning and pain. She's been through a lot. So if you're hearing this for the first time, um, you are not alone. There are others who have not heard this story told this way. But let's stop judging this woman without knowing her. Indeed, let's stop judging all women without knowing them. And let's see and find out what Jesus is doing here. And to know that, we need to back up one chapter earlier in John chapter 3 to the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a guy where the woman at the well is a woman. Nicodemus has a name, the woman at the well. It's just the woman at the well. 
Nicodemus is a temple elite. He comes to Jesus at night. Notice the woman at the well meets Jesus in the middle of the day at high noon, the complete opposite of night. Nicodemus has this conversation with Jesus about what can I do to have your eternal life? And and Jesus says, well, you need to be born uh, from above. And he goes, you mean born like in blood, like from my mother? And he's like, no, you need to be reborn. You need to understand yourself as a new creation. You need to lay down patriarchy and pick up liberty. And Nicodemus doesn't get it. For as wealthy and promoted as Nicodemus is, he doesn't quite understand Jesus' message. He has too much to lose to follow Jesus. And so he leaves Jesus in the middle of the night. He runs back home. Then maybe the next day, Jesus is there with the woman at the well. It's high noon, and the conversation goes very differently. This woman at the well is not as educated as Nicodemus, is not as high status, but perhaps because she has less desirable resume, she's more open to change. She has no name. She's come to the well at noon to avoid the taunts and stares of the other so-called wholesome women, the ones who are married and and really um, were products of a system that worked well for them. But this woman at the well, as far as we know, she did everything right in the system. And the system spit her out and called her names. Have you been to a place without running water? When you have to go find water to start your day, you do it first thing, probably before the sun comes up. To go at noon would mean that you waited around all day to go get water in the heat of the day where it's going to be hottest what's going to be hardest, where the water's going to evaporate more. And it's the only thing that you get to do that day. All you get to do is go get water to survive. You don't get to thrive. So the woman at the well shows up at noon in order to survive. She has a complicated relationship to the well. This well is both needed for her life, for survival, and the patriarchy surrounding the well is the thing that's keeping her from thriving. It's keeping her alive, but it's keeping her barely alive. And on top of that, this well is the ancestral home of Jacob. This is Jacob's well. It's the beginning of her faith life. It's the foundation of her family and her theocracy and her religion and her faith is all tied up in the patriarchy, the life that is this well. And she shows up at noon and enters into a beautiful conversation with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, by the way, sends all of his disciples away. He says, y'all go get some food so that he can have this conversation with her because he believes that the other guys will stop him from talking to this woman. And the prose of the conversation are written like witty banter between equally gifted minds, Jesus and the unnamed woman at the well. The conversation is about, give me a drink, um, where you have nothing to pour it out with. Uh, They have this conversation about water and life and living water. And then she says, let me ask you this question. I can tell you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Do you think the right place, the proper place to worship God is here on our mountain up in the north or down in Jerusalem at the temple? And Jesus says, a a time is coming when you're going to worship God, not just in one location or the other, but you're going to realize that God is everywhere. And she says, I know that a Messiah is coming. And he says, I that speak to you am he. The conversation with the woman at the well goes infinitely farther than the one that happened last night with Nicodemus. Do you see that? Do you see that now? 
Nicodemus came and was asking for Jesus to give him answers that fit within his patriarchal system. He wanted to continue his power and privilege and learn nothing new. But this woman who had so much to gain and so little to lose who was only surviving and not thriving, who has none of the education or the notoriety, has the deepest theological conversation with Jesus that anyone in scriptures ever has. She has the most deeply spiritual conversation with Jesus than any other one person has in any of the four Gospels. She is unnamed, and for some reason, she has slandered, even though she has this wonderfully deep conversation. She's the first person in John's gospel that Jesus says, I am he too. The first person that he reveals his nature as Messiah to them. And the conversation they have about water leads to a conversation of what Jesus is there to offer. Not just healings, not just water turned to wine. He's offering the eternity life, the good life. Jesus says, the water that I will give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life, as if to say, you don't need the patriarchy of Jacob's well in order for you to live your best life. You don't need to put up with the stares and glares of those for whom life has just been a piece of cake who don't understand why your life has been so hard. You don't need to cower to the forces that be and call the patriarchal system of Jacob's well something that you love when in deep down it's something that's causing you not to thrive. You don't need to stay in the abusive relationship of patriarchy and systematic oppression and power grab. If it's holding you down, you can get up from that. Because the water that Jesus gives will become a spring in you. Living water is in you. When you listen to the words of Jesus, you have the words of eternity life. I love this verse, as you can tell. It was given to me by my pastors when I was confirmed as my confirmation verse, as my baptismal promise verse. I think they sense in me a deep longing to be able to articulate the gospel message. And I know, because I've talked to them, that they prayed that I might someday grow up and have things to say, have a voice devoted to God's word. When I became a dad, we named our oldest son Jacob as the one who wrestles with God and receives this blessing, but also because of this story of the woman at the well. She meets Jesus because of the gathering place established by Jacob. It was Jacob's well. It was at this well that the biblical Jacob goes after receiving God's blessing. And it's at this well where he meets the love of his life, Rachel. And so this well is the place where he reinvents himself, where he goes from being the mischievous Jacob who tricks his dad and runs away, wrestles with God, begs God to bless him. And right after that blessing, he comes to this well. And it's only then and there that he meets Rachel. It's like, It's like after we realize we are blessed, our lives can change and he meets the love of his life. Jacob is the one who perpetuates the promise that was given to Father Abraham. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons. Actually, he didn't. He only had two sons. And one of those sons had two sons. And the youngest of that was Jacob. Jacob is the one who has a lot of sons. Jacob is the one who has the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It makes you wonder about this well as a meeting place must be something there in the water. When our second son came along, we named him Thomas. 
I was in a situation where the church I was serving was building a new campus in beautiful part of Arizona called Gold Canyon, just uh, 30 miles east of Phoenix. And it just so happened that when my son was born, that this new site was going to come online and my son Thomas was going to be the first baby baptized there. Imagine that. Pastor's kids got first first uh, rite of baptism there. And in the middle of this new campus, they were building a courtyard. And they wanted to be able to do the baptisms outside in this courtyard. So they put in a fountain. And they had from the fountain a, a stream that came off of it where running water would flow down these rocks and into this basin. It was, it's really beautiful. It's a beautiful place. And one day they came and found me um, after a building meeting. And they said, Pastor Daniel, we have an idea. By the way, I was not a pastor then. I was an intern pastor, but they uh, they never seemed to use that title correctly. They'd say, Pastor Daniel, um, we have an idea. We want to put a Bible verse on this fountain, on this part that's flowing right here. What you got? What Bible verse can we put on this fountain? I launched into this beautiful story that you're hearing about the woman at the well, how she's misidentified, but more than that, she's underestimated, and how the story of the woman at the well is a story of how Jesus' words give us the boldness to proclaim the message of freedom and liberty to all the world. And they said, so what? what's the gospel message? What, what's the line you want there? I said, the water that I give shall become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And to this day, if you go to the Lutheran Church in Gold Canyon, Arizona, you will see those words etched in there where our son Thomas was baptized, right there where the water flows down that I will give will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And sisters and brothers, one of the important things about the scripture verse to me is that you know that it's more than just a good line, okay? It's more than just a good line. There is something in the water that Jesus gives. There's something in his words. There's something that happens in our baptism. There's something that happens when we wash our face, as Luther says, and we remember our baptism. Jesus' water is running water that makes us clean and new and makes us forgiven and loved. It gets us ready for a new day. The woman at the well needed a change in her life, a big one, where she refused to let other people leering at her define her. The well, the entire tribal system, was not benefiting this woman. It was stifling her. Do you see that? The patriarchy was keeping her down, keeping her body alive, but killing her spirit. And after this conversation with Jesus, after Jesus gives her this living water, guess what she does? She leaves her jug behind the thing that she was using at that well to perpetuate her life of being alive but not thriving. She leaves her jug at the well of ancestral patriarchy and she runs she leaves the well, which has stagnant water, and runs to tell people about the living water of Jesus. She was going to be infamous already, so she might as well become famous. And the part of the translation that is often most damning of the woman at the well is also so poorly and incorrectly translated that we need to take a moment and rewrite that so that you might appreciate how beautiful this story is. It's often read that what she tells the people when she runs into town is, I met a man who told me everything I had ever done. But good scholars, biblical scholars who understand feminist translation realize that the better translation is, I met a man who told me everything I had ever been through. 
Do you see how that translation matters? You see how the first one seems as if Jesus looked her in the eyes and judged her? And the second translation sees that Jesus looked her in the eyes and realized how hard her life had been? Throughout the New Testament are people whose lives are forever changed because they encounter Jesus and his living water. His words told them that they are new, they are free, they are liberated, they are loved, they are cared for, they are made clean, they are created in the image of God. And it is God alone who defines them. God alone. One of the people who meets Jesus in the New Testament is Paul who writes, it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. So sisters and brothers, I have some questions for you. Who are you going out of your way to avoid, to avoid their judgment? Is it your mother-in-law? who never seem to approve of you? Is it your doctor who tells you the same shaming health news? Is it your high school friends or your siblings who refuse to let you grow up? Is it your dad who thinks that you're something that needs to be fixed? Is it your therapist who knows you're holding back or your pastor who just watches you with judgmental eyes? Whoever your judge is, you can draw strength from the story of the woman at the well. The woman who could hold a deep intellectual conversation with Jesus far more than any of the men he had dealt with, who got his message and went and proclaimed to all the shame shouters, I met a man who knew everything I had ever been through. The best thing you can do, Eternity Life podcasters, the best thing you can do in your life is to own your own story. Own your own God-loved story. Own it. I am a middle child. And now I have a podcast. Own it. (laughs) Own it. Own you. Meet Jesus and take a drink from the water hose of eternity life and be prepared for it to change you because there's definitely something in the water. Amen.